Strategic Financial Partners presents the Rush Hour Podcast, where the rubber meets the road on the economy, stock market, and personal finance. Now here's your host, Matt Rush. Welcome to the Rush Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rush, and with me today is Tim Holland. Tim is the Senior Vice President and Global Investment Strategist at Brinker Capital. Tim is a CFA charter holder, and he can also be found in various business media, including CNBC, Bloomberg, The Wall Street Journal, and Investors Business Daily. Tim, I've also read your blog post. I appreciate you joining us today on the program. Oh, hey, Matt. Great to be with you. Appreciate the opportunity. Um, And thanks for for checking out uh, our blog. Um, Really appreciate that. Absolutely. So, Tim, tell us a little bit about what it is that you do for Brinker as the Senior Vice President and Global Investment Strategist. Sure. So at Brinker, I wear two primary hats as a firm's investment strategist. Uh, The first would be I'm vice chair of our asset allocation committee. So for those portfolios where we have discretion, I lend a hand, I participate in uh, those conversations around asset allocation, portfolio construction, uh, how much we should tilt one way or the other within certain bands uh, across the suite of portfolios we manage. And and, uh, even for those portfolios where we don't have discretion, that thinking, that work uh, that we do uh, around the market and economic cycle, asset allocation, portfolio construction really filters and flows across the firm. So, so that's the first hat. Uh, the, the second hat really ties back to the conversation we're having today. Um, as a firm's investment strategist, I'll take our thinking, uh, you know, the work, the analytical uh, um, uh, work and, and, and the data we look at and, and, uh, and, and what we read and consume to make those asset allocation uh, portfolio construction decisions and share it with the financial advisors uh, we work with across the country uh, so they know what our thinking is around the market and the economy. And if there's any interest among those financial advisors that we work with, we'll share that thinking with their clients as well. So it's really kind of half market facing and, and half uh, working with the advisors we work with uh, across the United States. Well, let's go ahead and jump right in and start to talk about the Fed. I'm sure that's that's your favorite topic right now. Uh, I know that a lot of times whenever I speak to clients and other financial advisors, there's this misnomer that that, that their response has been the same as what it was in 2008, 2009. But let's talk about how it is that it's different. Yeah. So, so at a high level, um, you know, there are three things uh, the, the Fed has has done um, in response to this awful um, um, pandemic and, and the economic and the market crisis that it created. Uh, the first is, you know, they took interest rates to essentially zero, and they've promised to keep rates low for the foreseeable future. At the Fed's most recent meeting, I thought the biggest takeaway was from Chairman Powell's press conference, where he said, "We're not even thinking about." thinking about raising interest rates. So that was the first thing they did. The second thing they did was uh, literally inject trillions of dollars in the short-term lending markets, which really weren't functioning uh, the way they were supposed to function. Uh, Parts of the bond market were seizing up. And then the third thing they did uh, was launch, uh, at first, a securities purchase program that had a dollar amount to it, uh, but then uh, that dollar amount was quickly uh, uh, taken away and, and it became an open-ended securities purchase program. So those are the uh, three big things the Fed has done and, and that they continue to, to execute on. Um, it's similar to, to 08 and 09 in that the Fed cut rates dramatically and the Fed engaged in quantitative easing. Really, that was the first time we heard that term, the purchasing of securities to try and push liquidity into uh, the economy, uh, improve lending conditions for corporations and consumers. But what's really different this time around is the speed with which uh, the Fed moved, 
uh, they were just very deliberate. Um, uh, they just they went all in almost immediately. Uh, the, the second big one is the open-ended nature of the securities purchase program, right? If you go back to 08 and 09, we had, if memory uh, serves, QE1, QE2, uh, QE3, Corp. And then they finally went um, open-ended. Uh, this time, the Fed essentially went open-ended from the get-go. So the, the checkbook does not have a, a, a limit. It doesn't run out of checks. And they're buying a lot more uh, securities um, than they did in 08 and 09. Uh, this time, they've included municipal bonds, investment-grade corporate bonds, and even high-yield bonds, i.e. junk. So, so the scale is just um, unprecedented in terms of the dollar amount because it's open-ended. And then um, the securities that the Fed can purchase goes way beyond uh, what they did in 08 and 09. So we're really in uncharted, unprecedented territory from a monetary policy perspective. So you mentioned two things there. The first one was the securities purchase program being open-ended. Am, am I wrong or have they actually began to make those purchases yet? Or, or is that just that is out there that they can do that? Yeah, th th that's probably the most fascinating thing uh, to think about. I think, Matt, vis-a-vis -vis monetary policy and what the Fed is doing. Um, you know, so the Fed has set aside or allocated about $2.6 trillion dollars Right? It's just a, almost an unfathomable amount of money uh, to spend on asset purchases. And the Fed has launched or will launch 11 emergency facilities to make those purchases. Right, They, they create special uh, vehicles for, say, municipal bonds, investment-grade bonds, and, and, and so on. Um, and the Fed really sort of made these announcements around securities purchases back in March, March 23rd, give or take, really when the equity market bottomed. And at the time, the bond market just wasn't functioning. It was seizing up. Uh, spreads were blowing out, uh, the, the difference between what people were willing to buy or sell a bond for, and companies were having a hard time uh, raising capital. And so $2.6 trillion has been allocated or set aside. The thing that's most amazing to me, and gets back to wh why the question is so, is so important, they've only spent about $100 billion. So they've got $2.5 trillion in dry powder. So we've been in this business a long time, you and I, and one of the great Wall Street maxims is you don't fight the Fed. So, you know, we'd, we'd advise against fighting the Fed, especially when the Fed's got $2.5 trillion sitting in, in, its, uh, in its back pocket. The thing that's fascinating, though, is just the promise of Fed participation in the fixed income markets, you know, uh, mortgage-backed securities, munis, investment-grade bonds, high-yield bonds, really completely unstuck the bond market. It was just the promise of participation changed behavior, liquidity dynamics on a dime to the extent that through the end of May, this doesn't even include June, through the end of May, uh, the, the private sector has sold over a trillion dollars of investment-grade bonds, more than two times the pace of issuance last year through the end of May of 2019. So the Fed has only spent about $100 billion. They've got $2.5 trillion left. Given how dramatically borrowing conditions have improved and the capital that uh, companies have been able to raise and now municipalities and states are raising, I would be shocked unless we suffered some exogenous shock to the economy uh, going forward akin to a dramatic second wave, a complete reshutting down the economy, none of which we think will happen. I can't imagine the Fed's going to spend anywhere near what they thought uh, they would spend or what they set aside. Again, just the promise of participation, the promise to help completely unstuck the bond market 
and allowed uh, the private sector uh, to raise over a trillion dollars. So, you know, hats off to Jay Powell and, and his colleagues at the Fed. They've done, I think, an extraordinary job. So you mentioned something there about risk to the economy, and I've read the the Brinker market probabilities grid. Would you talk about some of the potential risks and surprises that you see, you know, going forward? Yeah. So near term, meaning over the next ninety days or so, we wouldn't be shocked to see uh, some volatility uh, in in the markets. Right. We've had this massive move uh, higher um, um, off that March twenty third low. Right. The S and P peaked at about thirty four hundred on February nineteenth bottomed at about 2,200 on March 23rd, and now we're up about 40%. Now, from our perspective, the rally wasn't, unex- un- wasn't unexpected. We participated in it because the market's a leading indicator, as you know, because of the unprecedented fiscal monetary policy response. Um, and then finally, the real economy is starting to catch up with risk assets, right? A very good May retail sales report, May uh, jobs report. But, but near term, you're at a point in time where uh, it's a seasonally weak period for the market, right? The classic sell in May and, and, and go away. Um, you've got the digestation of this dramatic move higher, that 40% uh, rally off that March 23rd low. And we think that 23rd uh, of March low will prove to be the low for, for, for this cycle. We've been saying that for a while. And you've got the uncertainty around the election. So some volatility near term through the summer into early fall wouldn't be unexpected uh, if there are folks out there that have capital that they'd like to put to work. If history is any guide, you'll have a window to do that at a more advantageous price over the next 60, 90 days or so. Uh, that said, if history is any guide, when you see this kind of bounce in the S&P 500, the market's almost always higher six to 12 months out. So longer term, uh, we're, we're, we're pretty bullish on U.S. equities, and we still are constructive on the asset class, but we wouldn't be shocked to see some volatility, some down days, Again, given seasonality, given the election, and given that we're still going to get some bad news, unfortunately, on the coronavirus, on the reopening of the economy. Uh, but we would take advantage of that volatility if people had capital, put that capital to work at more attractive prices. Well, I think I know where you stand on this since you said that you're bullish on U.S. equities. But yeah. now that we know where the U.S. stands, what, what do you think about uh, a more global perspective? Yeah, so we've been overweight U.S. equities for a while now. Um, if you think about what we've been able to do as a, as a country um, from a monetary and, and a fiscal policy perspective, you know, few countries have the wherewithal we have uh, from a sort of a capital perspective, um, from a, a pharma, from a biotech, from an R&D uh, perspective to, to not just mitigate the impact of this awful virus from an economic perspective, but to, to direct intellectual and financial capital added to try and solve for it from a treatment and a vaccine perspective. Uh, if you look at, say, the European Union, uh, where you've got a, a European central bank, single monetary policy, fiscal policy is still really driven country by country. And the EU still hasn't moved on a pan-EU fiscal policy response to this awful pandemic and, and the recession and downturn it's caused. So, we just have an ability to move in a way that most countries can't because we print the world reserve currency of the dollar. That's just a tremendous advantage in terms of the government's ability to borrow and direct capital at the real economy at the states and the companies and the Americans most impacted by this virus. So we still like um, the U.S. relative to the rest of the world. We really don't think the rest of the world gets going until we get going, right? We're the world's largest, most important economy. So as you start to see economic growth um, move higher, not just here at home, but around the world, and that recovery starts to broaden out, and that's going to take some time. 
that's when the rest of the world should start to catch catch up. And then within the U.S., uh, we continue to like growth equities versus value equities. Again, the economy is clearly recovering. We're seeing a dramatic bounce higher in all sorts of data points, um, but it's still a very challenging period. And in that type of uh, difficult macro environment, we think investors will continue to favor stocks and companies that can grow almost independent of the business cycle, their top line and their bottom line. And back to Jay Powell the Federal Reserve, low interest rates flatter or support higher price to earnings ratios, which you tend to find within the growth equity space. So at a high level, uh, until we really get going, uh, we think that globally, um, you know, we think that the U.S. is a better place to be. And until, again, the economy really starts to pick up, we think growth uh, versus uh, value is a better place to be as well. Well, Tim, I really appreciate you breaking down Fed policy, uh, sharing Brinker's thoughts on where we go from here. Maybe after we get a little bit closer to the election season, we could get you on again. Oh, I'd love to come back on, Matt. Um, while I've been in investments for a long time. My first uh, job out of college was as a junior lobbyist in New York City. So I love talking politics uh, and, and how politics can impact policy and how policy maybe ties back to right the real economy and risk assets. So uh, if, if you have a, a uh, space for us, uh, an opportunity to come back on. We'd love to. I would love that. Tim, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. For more content from Tim, you can follow him on LinkedIn or his blog, Insights, at blog.brinkercapital.com. You can follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Matt Rush SFP. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to be notified as new episodes are released. And if you're interested in our firm or would like to contact me, check us out online at strategicfinancialpartners.com.